Welcome to the Renegade Disciple Podcast, where we use Christian theology to try to make sense of what the hell is going on in the world around us, and horror movies to try to cope with whatever the hell this is going on around us. I'm your host and fellow traveler, David, semi-professional theologian and lifelong horror movie fiend. This is episode 13 for the week beginning July 16th, 2023. It's awesome that y'all are joining me here for this episode. As usual, I got a little bit to get into today, uh, all revolving around the idea of freedom, given that the fourth was not that long ago. But first, before we get into it, remember to rate, review, subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform, or even on multiple platforms, because all the numbers help. And in a like manner, if you'd be so kind, share it to social media, tell your friends about it, blog about it, whatever it is you do to spread the word about the things you like. And finally, go ahead and give me a follow on Twitter, Instagram, Spoutable, or even the new uh, the, the new Meta Threads app under the Renegade Disciple name with the same cover art as the pod. And if you want to ask me anything, make any recommendations about topics or movies and shows you'd like to hear me discuss or offer any direct feedback, you can email me at renegadediscipledpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's renegadediscipledpodcast at gmail.com. Now, let's get into it. I'm doing stuff, Lori. Thanks. What are you doing out here? I've, I've been... Here. We'll start by catching up a little bit because I know it's been a couple of weeks. I mentioned there in the intro, you probably heard me stumble over it a smidge, how uh, I'm on the Threads app now because why not have yet another social media pa- platform? And man, that does make me stop and think we do have a lot of social media platforms, don't we? Mainly because the richest man in the world bought the best one and destroyed it. So now I saw somebody post when Threads first came out that it's almost like we're, we're all like Voldemort and, and all of our different profiles amongst these dozen platforms are like the horror cruxes of our souls split in so many po- portions. And that's kind of true, man. It's, it's like you're split on all these different platforms and it almost is at the point of being overwhelming. I mean, you guys are there, right? If you have a thought and want to make a post and you have to make the post on all the different platforms it is uh it is something else and maybe just maybe we're all kind of silly for playing along with the game but whatever we're gonna i'll keep playing along with the game for now i appreciate those follows and any interaction on social media you ever give me i'd love to increase that other things in life right the fourth of july happened it was just a couple weeks ago our cultural midsummer celebration. I talk uh, in so many podcasts about the Christian calendar, right? And, and how we have these celebrations that tie into the cyclical seasons of life and how in so many ways they resonate with the celebrations that even pre-existed Christianity tying into those seasons and those cycles. And the 4th of July is a unique one in American culture because American Christianity especially 
doesn't really have that midsummer festival. Like we don't really get into St. John's Day and St. John's Eve and bonfire night uh, around the summer solstice. But what we do have is the 4th of July. And the 4th of July is our cultural midsummer celebration. And you could, well, doesn't it make a lot of sense that for American culture, since we don't have any religious celebration at the midsummer point, we celebrate ourselves. We worship ourselves at midsummer and our freedom and our independence and our history and all these things we are so proud of. And we blow shit up. And doesn't that make a lot of sense too, given who we are as a culture and the violence that we're prone to and our uh, obsession with guns and with action movies and superheroes. We like to blow shit up. I'll be honest, I was at a place where we were blowing shit up over the 4th of July, had a blast with it. Uh, it's uh, become a family tradition for us to go down to my dad's, um, who has a lake house in Alabama for the 4th of July. Yeah, man, I, uh, I spend the 4th of July in Alabama a lot. And I gotta let you know, it's a little odd. Like, I walk around wondering if they know me. Like, does it stand out? Am I noticeable in public? Are y'all gonna, like, look... Are they gonna look at me and be like, Hey, hey, hey. That's a Marxist. Hey, I see him. It's a Marxist. It's a liberal. Because, uh... My life might be in danger if they knew who I was up there in their Walmart in Alabama when we have to make a run for supplies or food or anything. I'm very consciously aware of that. I remember the first few years we drive down and the stretch from the interstate to his neighborhood, I would always joke with Abigail and stuff that there are. There are just way too many churches of Christ and Baptist churches on this stretch of road for my Yankee liberal butt. I'm like the Ralph meme from The Simpsons in the bus. I'm in danger. But I love to go down there. I love to see my dad. I love to see my extended family who comes down. Uh, I love water sports, all of them. And we do kind of make a weekend of it, of boating and jet skis and skiing and tubing and all that great stuff. The kids have a blast. It's kind of the primary time they get to see their cousins on that side of the family. And it's... It's some good times, and we set off a lot of fireworks on the 4th. That's part of the tradition as well. It's not the 4th of July if one doesn't misfire into the crowd and explode and almost kill a few of us, which happened again, but hey, it would it be the 4th of July if your life wasn't in danger from fireworks? Would it really you know, I say most of this in jest. Y'all know if we sat down and had an intellectual conversation about things, I... I give you some takes that you'd more so expect but i have fun i love to go i always wonder about the folks even up here at home who set fireworks off all summer or even the folks down there around my dad's who set fireworks off all week rather than just keeping it all for the fourth because one it makes the fourth of july show that much bigger of a celebration because you just save up all your fireworks for one night a week and two you don't actually annoy every other human who lives near you as you torture their dogs endlessly from nowadays it's been from late April until 
Halloween almost that I have fireworks going off in my neighborhood at home. And while I love fireworks on the 4th of July, I don't appreciate that. I got a skittish little puppy who doesn't like fireworks and one, it makes me sad for him, but after a few days, he's kind of annoying about it. And my annoyance is mainly directed at the neighbors who just can't hold their celebration in for one day a year. But whatever. It was the 4th of July. And because it was the 4th of July, I, I think a lot about what's being celebrated on that day and what dominates American culture like, like we discussed. And so I think a lot about this notion of freedom. So we're going to do a little bit of a mini deep dive on my takes about the concept of freedom and how it plays in our culture and a Christian theological response to it, uh, but also how the way we think about and, and treat the concept of freedom in this culture plays right into these things we've been talking about on the past few episodes about misinformation and truth and conspiracy, uh, because it, it comes into this idea of authority and so on and so forth. So I think it's all really relevant. So without further ado, let's jump into a deep dive on freedom. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight. In America, we talk about freedom all the time, right? It's a driving force behind every way we conceive of ourselves, every way we choose to be, everything that we think is important, everything that we stand up for. We have all of these glib slogans and sayings that almost go beyond slogans because they're like statements of doctrine. I think a lot of, of this idea that you hear all the time, freedom isn't free. You know, a statement which, when you really start to analyze it beyond the surface level, it's among the silliest things people ever say because, on its face, freedom by definition is free. Now, when folks say it, they want you to remember that people, lots of people, have worked and fought and risked everything to win and maintain the freedoms we enjoy as a society. They usually want you to think about soldiers, but it's true for philosophers, presidents, civil servants, civil rights leaders, educators, theologians, prophets, and pastors, who all have done just as much work as soldiers throughout our history to keep this thing going as best we can, and keep improving on it, and keep extending our ideals of freedom to as many people as possible. The dedication and sacrifices of all of these folks are exponential, and it's a lot of the reason why I can make a podcast and post it online, spouting off whatever I want, whenever I want, and I don't have to worry about as many repercussions as most humans who have ever lived in any place in history. But if you were talking about freedom in the purest, most basic sense, even under the most oppressive regime you could imagine, I'd still be free to create and release an illegal podcast and dis distribute subversive materials as much as I'd want. I'd just have to take responsibility for the consequences. All of that aside, though, in American culture particularly, we're obsessed with this notion of what many come to be called to call libertarian free will. This idea that you possess a freedom within you, a free will within you, 
that makes you capable to weigh different options and make one decision over the other. You're capable of bringing in information and being informed and making the best decision possible through your free will. And it's not tied down, it's operative, it's meaningful, you really do have it, it really does exist, it's a real thing in the real world. You possess this free will. And this concept of freedom in this philosophical libertarian stance, that's opposed to political libertarianism, which we'll get to in a minute, extends to all people and is something that should be protected and enshrined within our institutions. We think that we wake up every day and make totally free decisions about every little thing, from what we want to eat, to what we want to wear, to what we choose to do that day, even whether we follow the law or harm people or not. On the extreme right, which skews towards libertarianism as a political ideology, based loosely on this concept, they even think that folks make, wake up and make free choices about their sexuality or gender identity or even their beliefs or religious preferences. If they could get away with it, libertarians, I'm telling you, would, would make the argument that folks wake up and choose their race and nationality. The thing is, I don't believe that is something that exists in actual reality. At least not to the extent that we wish it would. Each of us is inextricably influenced by external and internal forces beyond our control into every choice we make. In many instances, alternative choices don't really exist and were never really options, no matter how hard we need them to in order to justify or uphold the economic, political, and criminal justice systems that we've constructed and wish to believe in as true. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, In fact, what I so proudly call myself is merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. Eggs and alcohol and a good night's sleep will be the real origins of what I flatter myself by regarding as my own highly personal and discriminating decision to make love to the girl opposite to me on the railway carriage. Propaganda will be the real origin of what I regard as my own personal political ideals. I am not, in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. Now that's not the central point he's making in that section. He's going on to talk about how to find a true individual personality. You have to turn to Christ who will make you whole and make you unique and, and all of that. But he hits on something there. On something that I think is really true to human nature. I believe there's more truth to those lines than even he could see. Each of us have preferences and favorites. Favorite foods, favorite colors, favorite seasons, favorite places, favorite music, movies, books, etc. But none of those are objective choices between carefully weighed options that have been influenced by outside forces. 
Maybe your favorite color is what it is because your subconscious associated it with the most common shirt your mother wore or the wallpaper in your nursery where you felt the most safe, and thus it predetermined that to be your favorite color. Maybe your favorite music style comes from something you heard before you were even aware of what music was that was automatically associated with positive experiences that you probably don't even remember now, but have shaped you into who you are without your cooperation and without your choice. Your own individuality has infinitely less to do with freedom and choice than you think. And because we walk around with preferences and favorites, it immediately inclines us to choose one thing over another if given a choice, and it's not an objective, fact-based, weighing the options and choosing the best one type of choice, but one that's deeply influenced by preset preferences within ourselves. That's why, if we were to be honest, you know, we all look silly when we say that one thing is good or another is bad in these preferential matters like art or cuisine or interior design or favorite car or whatever, music, movies, literature, comics. Because whatever, because it's mostly individual to us and it's mostly shaped by things that were beyond our control anyways. Even ideas about good taste and bad taste are silly, ultimately, because they're just about what cultural norms folks have been trained to think are important to maintain, and which ones aren't. In that vein, how many online or in-person arguments look ridiculous once you come to understand this? We could go further down the rabbit hole about the value placed in high critic scores or awards or whatever being ultimately silly because of this as well. But you get my drift. Like, everything we so cherish and prize as stemming from our individuality and our freedom ain't really that. Not really. Not that much. This plays heavily into theology and ethics as well. I mentioned earlier most of the much of the resistance to LGBTQ plus rights still hinges on the idea that sexuality and gender are choices that could be changed. For many of us, the moment you shift from that way of thinking and start to better understand the realities of what orientation means, you realize that the dignity and humanity and rights of LGBTQ plus folks are equal to everyone else's because everyone's sexuality and gender exists on, in the same kind of way particular to them, even when it expresses itself very differently from one person to the next. It also changes things when you start to view criminals, even the most heinous you can imagine, as being driven by so much more than simple free will choice, including untreated mental illness, trauma, desperation from poverty, lack of proper moral guidance, and sufficient choices. I've said before how, you know, I'm, I'm a typical late 20th, early 21st century white guy who's fascinated by serial killers, and everyone I've studied to me is obviously not making black and white clear choices with rightly informed wills the way most of the rest of us are. There, there's some kind of break in the decision-making processes in their brains, and the world seems to look a lot different to them than it does to us. And there's something deeply broken in them that our criminal justice system is woefully inadequate to weigh when trying to hold them accountable for their crimes. 
And I'll go further and say it, it's so stark that for me, every single, every single person like that, every single serial killer who's ever been executed by the state is an example has to be an example of the state killing a mentally ill person who may not have been able to make a different choice unless outside forces had radically interrupted their context and offered proper care to them. We need these choices to be fully made by libertarian free will actors. And none of them are. But for our sense of justice and right and wrong in a criminal system, we need it to be and yet it's not. Our criminal justice system, in this way, and as you all know, in so many ways, just simply doesn't reflect reality. It's, it's a lie we tell ourselves to feel better about ourselves. It's all fantasy. We all sleep well with our blacks and whites about morality and justice. And it's all fantasy. My own personal theology about heaven, hell, and salvation hinges on this. Because of the finite nature of human existence, it would not only be inappropriate, but grossly unjust for a god to punish humans forever for decisions that, frankly, were never made from a pure, fully informed, objectively functioning will. God sending anyone to hell in the way that so many Christians believe would represent the ultimate form of giving the death penalty to a mentally ill defendant who had no way to fully grasp the true consequences of their actions. It would be the ultimate bastardization of justice. It would even be considered evil. Thus, I've long argued that there must be something else going on here. It's what my thesis was about in seminary arguing with C.S. Lewis about this idea of hell being the result of a free will rejection of God because, frankly, no human who has ever lived has possessed a will capable of responsibly making such a decision. And to require such a decision from any single person would be immensely unjust. We are incapable of having enough information and being free of influences beyond our control to do so. The nature of our very existence disallows for it. Like I said earlier, Lewis could at least see the way our preferences and choices aren't our own, and he wrestled mightily with the doctrine of hell, but in the end, his blind spot, his blind spot was refusing to extend his insights to their natural and eternal conclusions. Which all circles back around to our current cultural moment. We are obsessed with this idea of freedom. To the point that you could say it's the defining characteristic of an American is rebelliousness. We can't be told what to do or even what to think by things as stubborn as facts and truth. We demand that our ignorance be as valid as the knowledge of experts, to allude to the Isaac Asimov quote I've brought up before. We even don't like the notion of experts. We don't like the notion of authority. We rebel against all authority, even ones that make sense. Yes, you're perfectly free to believe whatever you want, but not all beliefs are justified. And the rest of us are still free to say your unjustified, unsupported, easily disprovable beliefs do not get to have a seat at the table of decision-making for the rest of us. They do not deserve an equal hearing in public or equal airtime on the news or equal coverage in the classroom. This is not partisan. This is it living into the reality that actually exists, regardless of who wants to deny that reality. And it's individual freedom that we really exalt. 
We want to be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and we want zero accountability for how it affects anyone or anything around us. We bristle at the notion of such accountability as if it's an assault on our freedom. We want all of the power and none of the responsibility. We reject Spider-Man's greatest lesson in ethics, that with great power there must also always come great responsibility. And we reject every lesson from the Bible that we are in fact our brother's keeper. That we are made by God to be responsible for the well-being of each other and of the natural world. Our freedom cannot even be told what to do by God. Not even by the God that we so proudly want to say we believe in so much as a predominantly Christian people. And that is why freedom is an idol in American culture. It's a false god that we've set up and worship and offer sacrifices to, oftentimes blood sacrifices, because, you know, we have the freedom to have our guns no matter what and no matter how many little kids get murdered and blown to bits in schools. Our freedom supersedes life every single time. We worship freedom, not God. And if you really want to dig into the theological tradition, that puts us much more in line with the character of Satan as articulated through the years of Christian thought than it does with the character of Jesus. One might even say it makes us a satanic, antichrist society. Which is kind of ironic, given the history of phony satanic panics we've discussed in previous episodes, with its current manifestation in the QAnon obsession about child trafficking. Which is, is in the news right now, right? Because there's this movie going on, The Sound of Freedom. Which, look at it, it has freedom right there in its title. The Sound of Freedom, and it's about child sex trafficking, which you should definitely be so worried about, and which is the biggest issue in the whole wide world, and which we should all be up in arms about. We know it's made by people who have shown to be liars in public. We know that it's based on faulty information. And we know that ultimately it's a scare tactic. It's no different from the satanic panics of the 80s to stir people up and have them really afraid that their freedom and their children are at risk from the worst possible actors. Meanwhile, they're manipulated into living actual satanic antichrist-type lives, worshiping at the altar of freedom instead of God. It's funny how that works, isn't it? Or at least, it would be funny if it weren't so damn sad. Anywho, why don't you ask me what horror movies and shows I've been watching? Go ahead. Ask. You know you want to. You like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. As you can tell, I definitely didn't go out and see The Sound of Freedom, even though its existence in our cultural conversation and at the top, near the top of the box office charts, is kind of a horror right now. Because we're still focusing on the 4th of July and issues of freedom and midsummer celebrations, y'all know what I watched. I watched Jaws. I watched the whole series. Um, I watch it every summer. This is this is the time of the year for Jaws. As you know, I like to have my movies set up with their different times of years to keep me having horror movies to watch the whole year long. And it's time for Jaws. And Jaws is the first one takes place on the 4th of July. Right? It's just like the mayor of Jaws said, you'll, you'll have a panic on the 4th of July. My favorite Jaws movie is Jaws 2. 
because you guys know I'm a sucker for a sequel that has lots of continuity to it, and Jaws 2 has a lot of the same actors, tells a nice secondary story. There's good continuity, even if the beaches clearly are Miami and not the Northeast anymore because they filmed down there to save money. That's fine. Jaws 2 is epic. It ends right with the shark being electrocuted to death by Chief Brody tricking it to bite the giant wire that provides power to the island. I like Jaws 2. I like Jaws 3, right? Jaws in SeaWorld, Jaws 3D. It's just as cheesy 3D as Friday the 13th Part 3 3D with things flying at you and all the places you could tell are definitely supposed to be 3D shots. When the shark blows up at the end of Jaws 3, you've got the literal teeth jaws of the shark coming out of the screen at you. It's cool. It's cheesy. It has Dennis Quaid working in SeaWorld. I like Jaws 3. It's got Louis Gossett Jr. for Christ's sake. It's a great movie. I like Jaws the Revenge, even though by that point it's a shark with real human feelings and a personal vendetta against the Brody family. The shark is out for vengeance. The shark murders one brother up in Amity and then goes all the way down to the Caribbean to chase the other brother and his family. It's got Michael Caine who flies a plane that the shark eats, right? The shark attacks a plane. Just like in Jaws 2, the shark does take down a helicopter, so there's precedent there. But Jaws the Revenge is it's something else. These movies, there's just enough continuity that if you squint hard enough, it's one nice full story. But they definitely, they stopped at that fourth one, and they probably should have. But for today, I think what I'll talk about the most with the concept of freedom is the original. The OG Jaws, one of the best movies ever made by Steven Spielberg, our among our greatest directors, the national treasure himself. One thing I'd argue, lots of people argue this about Jaws 2, but I'm even going to say it for Jaws 1 every time I rewatch it. Jaws is a slasher movie. It's a horror movie, and it's a slasher movie, and I'm reclaiming it for the horror slasher community because, damn it, these folks are going to stop stealing all the movies that they deem to be good away from our genre. You know how that works. Every time a horror movie is really, really good and gets critical acclaim and wants to get awards and people really hold it up as a great film, out of the woodwork come all of the well actually arguments that it's not a horror movie. Jaws is a horror movie. Jaws is not just a horror movie. Jaws is a slasher movie. Jaws 2 doubles down on being a slasher movie. But even in the first one, that Jaws is Michael Myers. It's Jason. It's Jason's mama. It's Freddy. That Jaws is a killer and a slasher movie. You see your kills from killer POV. You have set piece setup kill set piece set up kill just like a slasher film i love jaws the original i'm always shocked every time i watch it you know you guys go and watch jaws and you have that scene where they're uh where they're in the boat they're in the orca and it's richard dreyfus and it's chief brody and it's quint sea captain robert shaw and they're sharing their stories and robert shaw tells the story about being on the uss indianapolis and I always wonder why Steven Spielberg never made a prequel to Jaws that included the character of Quint aboard the, C the USS Indianapolis and 
all of the shark attacks and survival going on when that ship sank. Because Jaws is Spielberg's movie, and we know that Spielberg loves the World War II genre. It would be like a merging of perfect things. So if you hear me, Steven Spielberg, please, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's ever asked, give us the Jaws prequel about the USS Indianapolis. Though you've still got time to do it. Do it for us. Just just give us one gift in life. You wouldn't come back for Indiana Jones 5, so come and give us the Jaws prequel that you should have done a long time ago. But I digress. When we're, t- when we're watching Jaws and we're thinking about the idea of freedom, I think about the mayor, the mayor of Amity and Jaws, who won't close the beaches, and the city council, in both Jaws and Jaws 2, who won't listen to Chief Brody, and they won't close the beaches, and they won't put in basic protections for their people, because y'all... There's money to be made. It's the 4th of July in the first one. It's their busiest holiday. 48 hours during the 4th of July weekend is like four months, one person yells in the town meeting. And when I was growing up watching Jaws, I was so mad at that mayor. And he was such a villain in my mind. And all of this was so bad. And I couldn't imagine how anybody would ever be such a bad leader. Or how any group of people could ever be so stupid to not just take these basic precautions to protect themselves and their children from actual death out there in the water. Man, and then I grew up. And I look at the way that, you know, America treats their gun laws. And we can't just do some basic protections from death because of our freedoms. And then, even worse, I saw the way we did COVID. And the most basic policies to protect vulnerable people and the general population from COVID turned into such an assault on freedom. I can't wear a mask. I have freedom. We can't stay home from work. We've got our freedom. You can't tell us what to do. Freedom. Freedom, 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 freedom. The only thing we worship. Every last person who was buckling against that and refusing to comply, and every last mayor in every small town in America who refused to enact basic COVID policies was the mayor of Jaws. They were that jackass. Every single time. And the thing that's always blown my mind about watching Jaws, right? That dude got reelected. I grew up thinking, man... That, that's the most fantastical thing about the movie. That dude got reelected. How many of the mayors around here who put their people in just as much danger by being too stupid, too selfish, too drunk at the altar of freedom and money to put in basic policies got reelected? How many people have turned into a movement to revolt against things, rebelliousness against basic policies, a spirit of rebelliousness, a spirit of lawlessness? satanic antichrist if you would but yeah i love jaws watch it every fourth but it really makes me think of seeing some things right now and that'll just about do it for this episode don't forget to spread the show around leave that five star rating write a review give a social media follow and reach out the reflection will start just after the music cue uh this week i got to preach at a local church And I always love that opportunity, so I've added that audio for our reflection this week. Check it out if you want to. If you're not interested, no worries. I'll catch you all next go around. 
Before that, though, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that anyone in the world would click on my podcast and listen to me. I hope you all keep coming back, and I promise to keep striving to put out better and better content as I learn more and more what I'm doing here. See you all next time. God bless. Again, this is Sunday, July 16th, 2023, the 7th Sunday after Pentecost, year A. Our scripture this morning is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There we read, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. I went to visit my grandmother recently. She's getting older. Not as old as you might think. I think I've shared before. My mom had me really young. Uh, And my grandmother herself was by no means an older mother. So things are pretty compounded timeline-wise on this side of my family. She's into her 70s, but not far. But she's lived a life filled with numerous health issues. Issues which only seem to morph from one to the next as she gets older. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. You think you have one under control and a new one pops up every time. A lot of times she stays in good spirits about this. But every now and then she can get pretty low. And you can tell she's starting to face, both face and mourn her own mortality as things begin to compound on each other. This recent visit was on a low day. By the time we were leaving, she was getting pretty weepy. And I'm me, so, you know, the first thing I always try to do to handle super emotional situations is deflect with humor. And I went the route of a Monty Python reference. I told her after the kids were to the car so I could say a few things to her and not upset the kids. I said, you know, you're not dead yet. 
And we don't have to act like you are every time we see you. We see her pretty often, weekly basis. We don't need to be throwing you in the coffin while you're still here, and you don't need to be doing it to yourself every day. There can still be fun days and happy times. Right this moment, we can still do stuff together, so we should enjoy that while we can. When I left, I thought of the more profound way I've seen that sentiment put. In all of our lives, on only one of those days are we going to die. Every single other one of those days of our lives, we live. We get to live. Thus, on the days that we don't die, I think we should be mindful to not forget to truly live as best as we can in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And I guess that theme is on my mind heavy right now. Um, I also have another friend and former co-worker whose brother is in his final weeks of a years-long battle with cancer, and he's only in his 50s. And I'm sure a lot of you might be familiar with this phenomenon in such situations where a lot of times just before the end, the patient experiences this uptick in how they feel. They have this sudden moment where they wake up and just feel a lot better. I remember it when I was a kid from my great-grandfather who died of cancer when I was 12. And I just have this distinct memory that he was on his deathbed, you know, for weeks it seemed like, in hospice and, and things were low. And then one day he just got up and came shuffling out of his bedroom and felt great and had a whole day of feeling great. He made coffee, he sat and talked to, to some folks, he got to sit on his front porch all day and watch the cars go by like he used to. You know, he just had a good day. And I hear that that's sometimes a common experience. You know, he passed within days after that. I hear, too, that's also something of a common experience. And when I was talking to my friend, I was catching up with her about her brother this week, and he's had that uptick. He had had that uptick. Uh, he's been low for a long time and then woke up feeling great. And he had a whole week of feeling great. He got to go out to dinner. He got to take his wife out on a couple dates. He got to talk with family and hold conversations and laugh and not have the air of death just be all that fills the room. And she's familiar with the phenomenon as well. She's seen it happen. So she was aware of what that might mean. You know, it's not guaranteed. We're not the doctors, but there seem to be patterns in the way these things work out. And by the end of this week, he's actually back in the hospital and things don't look great. But he got a whole week. And I, and I talked to my friend about it, and I told her, I hope that you guys never forget this week you've had. I hope that you're able to really cherish the gift you were given of a whole week. And if things start to look rough in the days and weeks to come, remember, what a blessing and a gift to get that whole week to live instead of die. And she knew it, and she's doing just that. It was another reinforcement that each of us are all going to die one day, but on every other day we will live. We here also know, as people whose every hope is built on the foundation of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that even that one day where we will die will come undone in God's eternity, and we will continue to live beyond that. So, how then 
should we live? Our scripture today begins with what is among the most cherished and significant sections of the New Testament, the eighth chapter of Romans. N.T. Wright says of these opening verses of chapter 8 that we may even want to learn them by heart because we will seldom come upon a fuller or more exact statement of what God achieved in Jesus. He says, like someone in the desert discovering a small spring emerging from a huge cavern of water, there is enough to live on here for quite some time. In this chapter, Paul offers an initial conclusion to his greatest theological argument that he's been weaving throughout the first seven chapters of Romans. Romans is one long argument, and this is where he starts kind of concluding those first seven chapters. A good little rule of thumb for when you're reading the Bible that my teachers always told me is, you know, that passage for this morning began with a therefore. Anytime you see a therefore, you should ask yourself, what is that therefore? therefore. Yeah, you've heard that before. Probably I've said it before. (laughs) Here it indicates that Paul is summing up what he's been saying so far, offering the logical conclusion of the arguments put forward in the letter. The book of Romans, broadly speaking, starts with Paul establishing an equal need of salvation for all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile alike pointing out that we're all in the same boat of needing God to do something for us because we can't do it for ourselves. And then Paul moves on to elaborating about God's universal solution to this universal problem in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And then he settles into this contrast between the life of the flesh and the law as described in heartbreaking detail in chapter 7 and how none of us, even Paul himself, are capable of living up to those high standards perfectly, even when we want to really bad and try really hard. Contrasting that with the promises of the life in the Spirit that we find here in chapter 8. Paul talks here about living according to the Spirit rather than the flesh, And begins with the blanket statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been freed from the cares and brokenness that mark all of humanity and are now capable of living in light of heavenly realities rather than earthly ones. Now, this is one of those concepts that we find in Scripture that need a lot of unpacking for us in the 21st century. For centuries, our culture has been shaped towards a certain understanding of those ideas of spirit and flesh that is not quite what Paul or any of the authors of the New Testament or founders of Christianity had in mind when they spoke of such things. Even the English words that we kind of are forced to use in translation can mislead a little bit. I point it out often, but the worldview of Jesus, the apostles, and his earlier followers did not really have these categories of physical and spiritual, of earthly and heavenly in terms of disembodied souls like ghosts going somewhere to God. That's not the way they thought of things. God created the earth. God named the earth as good. God named the physical reality as good. And God is in the process of saving it from its fallen state. They didn't imagine 
disembodied souls going to a spiritual heaven in the sky when they died and living forever with a disembodied God as ghosts or something. All of that came later from outside influences on mainstream Christianity. In fact, if you go and study, the vast majority of all Christian writings that survive from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries are arguments against such ideas that there's this split between body and soul and that the body is bad and the soul is good. That comes from the outside, and most Christian authors were pushing back against that. It was, a, it was viewed as contradictory to the foundations laid by Paul and everyone else and the foundation of the Old Testament. Even if, despite their best efforts, it did creep in a little bit in the popular Christianity over the centuries. For the early Christians, everything was about resurrection into the realized kingdom of God and a physical reality. Which would very much so include physicality, like I said. Just like Jesus' body walked out of his tomb and could be touched and perceived, Jesus still ate with them, Jesus still acted like a physical being, was still tangible. Their hope of living beyond their deaths was something like that. When they spoke of heaven or the kingdom of God, they thought in terms of God's rule becoming manifest in this plane of existence, right here, in this universe, on this planet, healing all of the broken parts of our reality and restoring it to its initial goodness. They hoped for a physical resurrection of the entire cosmos. That's what they were looking at. They thought of history in a linear sense, you know, with past, present, and future progressing along just as they do for us now. And with, they thought of the current age being dominated by the destructive reign of fallen humanity, marked by things like scarcity and inequality and war and violence and justice sickness and death and they hoped for what they spoke of as the age to come the reign of God marked by the elimination of all of those things and the establishment of their opposites where there is now war there will be everlasting peace where there is now injustice there will be perfect justice where there is scarcity and inequality there will be abundance for all and where there is now death there will be life beyond our wildest dreams and that life includes everything we know about life right now and elevates it to something even more. It includes physical life. That's what they meant by heaven or the kingdom of God or the age to come. They were always waiting for God's heaven to break into the current age and replace it with something better. That's what Paul means here when he contrasts living according to the Spirit meaning according to the truths of the age to come rather than the flesh or the suppositions of this present fallen age. We live according to the rules of heaven, not according to the rules of right now. This was the model of the early church. When we read in Acts and in the letters all of those ways that the early Christians lived so radically, how they sold their possessions and distributed them among the community equally, how they held everything in common, how they fed each other and nobody functioned with a concept of anything being their own but rather devoted themselves to the common good. They were living into the life of the spirit, the life of heaven, the life of the age to come. They decided in their own communities at least, regardless of what's going on outside those walls, 
we can make it look like heaven and live according to those rules, not these rules. For them, after Jesus' resurrection, the falsehoods of this current world that tell you you need to look out for yourself and take care of yourself first and foremost, that everyone should get as much as they can, and if some wind up with more than others, it just means they're better at getting and the others should have tried harder. That, make, that might makes right and power, wealth, and status are to be desired and respected at all. The early Christians saw beyond the facade of those lies. It had all been exposed when Jesus walked out of his tomb. The world had been turned upside down, and they knew that the life of heaven could be seized right there and then. This was also Paul's central idea for the churches he planted. He saw them as, as he, he did it, I, I talk about this a lot because it's such a fascinating idea for me. Paul took a colonial mindset when planting churches. He, he was imitating what the empire did. You know, when Rome would conquer a land, they'd, they'd put a little city there in the middle of it and would make it like a miniature Rome and they'd send nobility from Rome to live in that city and they'd spread their culture that way. When Paul would put a church in the middle of the city, that was like a little toehold colony of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a foreign land. And these little pieces of heaven in the middle of this fallen age, what so many of us have come to refer to as the already but not yet, this Christian age of humanity is that already but not yet. So much has been realized, and so much is able to be realized, and yet so much is left to be completed. And we, we know that, and we have to be real about that. Even our own lives exist in a state of already, but not yet, as verses 10 and 11 indicate. In so many ways, not much has changed. We're still mortal, still subject to disease and decay and death. There will still be that one day when we die, just like every human who's ever lived since Adam, and yet, we are indwelled by the Spirit of God, and our lives bear the marks of immortality already. And we wait for that immortality to one day overwhelm our whole life and the whole world. We are in the already, but not yet. Still Adam, but also becoming Christ. All of which is the dominant theme of Romans going back to chapter 5. Paul believed these early communities had the power to influence the nations around them to be more and more like the kingdom as they saw the example of the Christian communities and followed suit to try to get some of that joy and some of that justice and some of that peace. Obviously, we cannot turn the world into heaven through our own work, but we can make it better by living lives of the Spirit in contagious ways that cause those around us to take notice and follow suit. That's what those of us whose faith commits us to social action and justice and protecting human and civil rights believe in. Not that we can make the world perfect, but that our job is to first make our own faith communities look so much like the kingdom that we can then influence the larger nations around us to follow suit. To offer both examples and when necessary, prophetic critiques to at least make things better while we wait for God to make things perfect. 
that is the task of faith. That is the Christian life. That's what it means to live like Christ in the world. Right? It's what the bracelets always meant. What would Jesus do? Make every place he found himself in a little more like heaven because he was there. What do Christians do? Make every place we find ourselves in a little more like heaven because we're there. Every great advancement of the last millennium towards human rights and justice has been accomplished because of this, because of people of faith committing themselves to following after this call. And they will only continue to be protected if folks like us, people of faith, continue that work. The life of the Spirit can still be seized right here and now. How are we to live on these days which we get to live? as if we were already in heaven. That's how. Even if that is in the face of our dominant culture that pushes values contrary to the kingdom of God and the life of the Spirit. Even if those supposed truths of the life of the flesh are so deeply embedded in our consciousness that we struggle with feeling like traitors to our families, our professions, and our nations when we first reject them to live according to the Spirit. None of that matters because none of that will endure. It is already in the process of being overthrown and will be replaced forever in God's kingdom, never to be missed, never to be mourned. Our call right now is to live in this way, to truly live. We all will die one day, but even those deaths will be overthrown and we will then continue on in life beyond them. One of my favorite songs has always been Switchfoot's Meant to Live, the chorus of which rings out over and over with the words, we were meant to live for so much more. And we were. We were all meant to live for so much more than what we usually have to endure with what the life according to the flesh, according to this current age, the rules of the world we live in, allegedly, would give us. And we all will one day live for so much more. And we are empowered by the Spirit of God to not have to wait for that one day to come, but to rather grasp the promise and hope and enjoy. And the joy and hope of heaven right now and let it transform us and those around us. And maybe transform the whole world a little bit while we wait for God to finish the process. The Spirit liberates us from the law of sin and death now and guarantees us resurrection and eternal glory in the age to come. Life in the Spirit is the only true life there is to live. Every other way is death. And that, the last seemingly random connection that this makes to my ADHD brain, is from the movie The Shawshank Redemption, which is based on a Stephen King short story always have to remind everybody of that. And the character of Red, who, if you've seen the film, was played by Morgan Freeman, so it's always Morgan Freeman's voice in my head when I hear this, but there's, there's just a small line that he says in the movie that you either get busy living or get busy dying. I suggest today that we get busy living. Shall we? Amen. Will you pray with me? O oh God, 
when your loving kindness both begins and finishes all good things. Grant that as we now glory in the beginning of your grace, so too may we hereafter rejoice in its completion. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless y'all.